And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he's known as mild-mannered TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Welcome to the 65th episode of Charlie's Geek Cast. I am your host, Charlie Niemeyer, and today we're looking at two more episodes, and by episodes I mean issues, of Action Comics, finishing off our run of the 1980s updating of Superman that came before John Byrne updated Superman in the mid-80s. So I guess our early 80s update of Superman, if you can say that, which is weird. Anyway... So we are going to take a quick break, and I'll be right back with our first issue, Action Comics number 554. Charlie's GeekCast will return after these promos. Did you know that Michael Bailey hosts a podcast? Yeah, I host or co-host a number of podcasts, actually. Did you know that Michael Bailey releases his podcast through the dark web? Now that's not true at all. I release my shows on the regular internet. I don't even know how to get to the dark web. Did you know that Michael's financing comes from shady donors who make up a cabal of people that like to kick puppies and kittens? What are you talking about? I'm pretty much self-financed outside of a modest Patreon that I produce no extra content Did for. you know that Michael Bailey supports free podcasts for everyone? And also works on his shows with potential foreign spies and anarchists? Of course I support free podcasts for everyone. And Andy isn't a spy of any kind. Bethany and Allison are hardly anarchists. And Jeff... Okay, you may have me there. Jeff is a little out there. Why would you support such a man by listening to his podcast? Alright, that's enough of that. Can we, can we get rid of creepy voice guy? He, he's not working out. He really just isn't. You can't get rid of me that easily. I'm a scary voice that is meant to frighten people into... Okay, okay, that's that's better. Hey everyone, my name is Michael Bailey, and I run the Fortress of Baileytude Podcasting Network. The Fortress is a collection of podcasts that I either host or co-host, all housed in a single place to make things easier on... me. The shows in the network include From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which I host with Jeffrey Taylor, and is all about the Superman books published between 1986 and 2006. The Overlooked Dark Knight, a non-index index show, which is a Batman podcast that is about Batman stories hardly anyone talks about that I host with Andrew Leyland. Views from the Long Box, my comics-centric podcast that has been online since 2007. And the newest show on the network, The Superman and Lois Tapes, which I host with Allison and Bethany and is all about the CW series Superman and Lois. The network can be found at www.fortressofbailytude.com, which also houses one of the web's largest repositories of information on the death and return of Superman from 1992 and 1993. You can subscribe to any of these programs through Apple Podcasts slash iTunes or through your favorite podcatcher, either a la carte or through the master feed. 
which has all of the episodes of all of the shows. The Fortress and its shows are also on Spotify, if you're into that sort of thing. The Fortress of Baileytude Podcasting Network. Doing my best to relieve boredom since 2007. The music on this trailer, Delay Rock, and Political Action Ad are by Kevin McLeod and are used under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Did you know? Oh, shut up! We now return to Charlie's Geekcast. Action Comics 554 had a cover date of April 1984, an on-sale date of January 26th, 1984, and a cover price of 75 cents. This actually might be my favorite Gil Kane cover so far. And Superman really isn't even in it other than as a piece of art. I mean, unfortunately, it doesn't really match most of what happens in the issue. But it's basically, I mean, we see two boys hiding in an alley drawing a picture of Superman while aliens are enslaving people. I mean, it's it looks nice. It looks like he had time to work on it. It looks well done. Very happy with it. The title of our story is If Superman Didn't Exist, written by Marv Wolfman, art by Gil Kane, lettered by Ben Oda, colored by Tony Tallon, and directed, directed, edited by Julie Schwartz. Superman, as always, created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Out in space, specifically in Earth's orbit, an armada of spaceships prepares to invade our little planet. And it turns out that it won't be as difficult as you might think. See, Earth is devoid of resistance, the capability of violence, and the heroic concept. As they begin their attacks, the farming community of London, the fishing village of New York, and the rural community of Metropolis are all attacked first. I guess. They're the only ones we see. Yes, despite this being 1984, the lack of wars has led to a lack of mythology and a halted cultural advancement. Despite all this, two very important boys, Jerry and Joey, have something that is considered taboo in this world. Imagination. They like to spend time dreaming up their guy. A guy who can fly like a bird and is strong enough to lift an entire rock quarry. But the other kids dismiss their stories as unimportant because they can't plow fields or make life better with stories. As these kids finish ridiculing Jerry and Joey, they go for a swim. Just in time for one of the alien crafts to arrive and blast the water, causing it to bubble making you think that the kids have boiled. As the boys run to safety at Joey's house and wonder why the ships are attacking, we drift back in time, learning that these alien forces are the ones responsible for the mysterious temples seen in the last two issues. We also learn that when Superman destroyed the temple at the dawn of time, it created a wave of energy that changed Earth. This leaves Earth full of people that can be used as slaves, but without the ability to resist or fight back. They don't even consider it. As the boys run out looking for their parents, they realize that they need to find a way to stop the invaders. But with there being no such thing as resistance, they are once again rejected. Realizing that they're on their own, they run off to their secret cave hideout. Not a bat cave, just a cave hideout. But up above, the invaders detect Jerry and Joey's resistance and plan to focus on stopping them. In their cave, Jerry figures that the invaders must be from the stars, and decides that their guy is also from the stars, too. Except that he's a good guy. So like any scared kids would do, they go about focusing on their guy, with Jerry coming up with the ideas of the look and Joey drawing it up on the cave wall. How they can see in this cave is never explained. They give him big muscles, sort of and a cape to catch the wind, and special boots to help him run fast, and a symbol on his chest 
to know that he's more than just a man. He's a super man. Evidently, Joey's art looks just like Gil Kane's. And the Superman image is colored in, despite the lack of boys having any way to add color to the image. While this may seem pretty mundane, this spark of imagination is helping to reform the heroic concept and bring back mythic belief. If that happens, Earth would, would revert to normal, and the aliens wouldn't be able to ha complete their invasion. We can't have that. Desperate, the invaders threaten death to, all, to everyone unless Jerry and Joey are turned over to them. This makes Jerry realize that somehow they are scared of the idea of Superman for some reason. So the boys run off to Jerry's house. Soon they regroup with the other nearby villagers wearing makeshift Superman costumes and the villagers start thinking that fighting back may not be such a bad idea after all. As a powerful beam of light bears down on all the villagers, the boys plead with everyone to believe in Superman. As the light edges closer, part of the light transforms into the form of the man Joey drew on the wall. And Superman returns. Without a word, possibly even without a thought, Superman takes to the skies, destroying one ship before being blasted by another. Now despite the battle appearing to take place in Earth's orbit, the villagers apparently can see this whole battle as Superman battles the Light Blast before taking out another ship. Then, for reasons, he leads the whole armada out into deep space. And they follow. Why not? Once they're far enough away from Earth, he busts into the main ship, only to find that the whole invasion was remote-controlled by two small little alien beings. They apologize for what they've done and reveal that all the people that appeared to have been killed were merely teleported to their holding bay. No one was killed in the whole invasion, at least not directly by them. Rather than face punishment, they offer to do anything that Superman asks. And as we see Superman depart from the ship, the narration box tells us that their new mission is to free all of the plants they captured. Meanwhile, down below, Earth has returned to normal, and Jerry and Joey's parents, or who I'm guessing are their parents, are very proud of them for being the heroes that Earth needed. Elsewhere, in a small house in the metropolis suburbs, two other boys, Jack and Joseph, come up with their own hero, inspired by Earth's heroes, and perhaps unknowingly, by Jerry and Joey. Okay, first off, let's talk about that big elephant in the room here. Jerry and Joey are obviously Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, the creators of Superman. And I would I believe that Jack and Joseph would be Jack Kirby and Joe Simon. And I'm guessing that they just created Captain America here. I don't know how they would be creating Captain America in 1984 without the whole war thing going on. But, uh, you know, we're in the Cold War, so maybe that was enough inspiration as well. But uh, since we never actually see the character, I don't know. It could be the Guardian or or someone else that they've created. Because they created quite a few characters, especially in the Golden Age. But since I believe Captain America is probably their most famous character, I would say that that's probably who they've just created here. We just can't see it for copyright reasons. Those are fun little Easter eggs. If you don't know your comic book history, that's just fun. If you do know your comic book history, they're just fun little Easter eggs. Alright, now the story itself is an interesting idea, but I'm rather confused about some things. Um, now, I'm not super knowledgeable about world history, but I, I have a pretty good handle on U.S. history. And I'm guessing that we can assume that countries go by different names, since New York and Metropolis would be in the United States, 
And I'm assuming that we can assume that countries go by different names since New York and Metropolis wouldn't be in the United States without the Revolutionary War. And New York wouldn't really be called New York because without all the persecution, the English settlers would not have left England to come over to the New World. And with no one branching out and leaving home, there would be no reason for Christopher Columbus to have discovered the West Indies, which sparked interest in traveling to this part of the world in the first place. So basically, the Americas, which wouldn't really be called the Americas, would probably just be inhabited by Native Americans, which wouldn't be called that since they wouldn't be in a place called America. They would just be natives. What I'm getting at is that Superman destroying the temple in time only apparently caused selective changes in the timeline, and all the people we see in this story are probably colored incorrectly. Not to mention they're all speaking English. And, uh, you know, if the English didn't come over here, there wouldn't be English here. Anyway, I'm probably just overthinking it as a kid's comic book after all, but, you know, if they're going to do something like this, they got to think that out a little bit better. Anyway, like I said, I like the concept, but if you need, but you kind of need to check your brain at the door first, or you'll be too busy asking these kinds of questions to enjoy the story. Seeing as how I'm a podcaster that's supposed to be dissecting the story, you know, it, it uh, I'm allowed to do that. The art is basically what we've grown accustomed to from Gil Kane. The layouts are pretty great. The final art, it just isn't my cup of tea. Uh, if this was a more modern issue, Joey's image of Superman on the wall would either actually be a straight-up copy of a Joe Schuster Superman, or at least the artist would have done his or her best imitation of Joe Schuster's art. Which would have been nice here, since, you know, Joey is the one drawing it. But ironically, it's actually one of my favorite Gil Kane Supermans up to this point. Uh, but this is Gil Kane's last superman art for our look at the superman update of 83 and 84 this might be his last issue on the superman books uh, he might have a special coming out still but uh next issue we have another fill-in issue crossing over with supergirl's title to celebrate her 25th anniversary but we're not interested with that so we're skipping that one and then marv wolfman's going to wrap up his run in action in the following issue to bring things to a somewhat satisfying but open-ended conclusion will he succeed we're gonna find out in just a bit but first playing us out is the new number one for the week of release owner of a lonely heart by yes so i will be right back in just a few see you then move yourself Charlie's Geekcast will return after these promos.
Dr. Fate. Dr. Midnight. Starman. Johnny Quick. Wildcat. Power Girl. The All-Star Squadron. Firebrand. Amazing Man. Huntress. Cyclone. Sandman. Mr. Terrific. Commander Steel. Power Seven Man. Soldiers of Liberty the Infinity Incorporated. Those are just some of the celebrated and beloved heroes associated with Earth 2 and the Justice Society of America. These daring mystery men and women banded together in 1940 to form the first super team in comics. They inspired a decades-long legacy of heroes who would follow in their footsteps. And now they've inspired us to launch a new podcast. Justice Society presents a new anthology on the Fire & Water Podcast Network featuring a variety of theme shows with different hosts celebrating some of their favorite comics and characters associated with the golden age of comics, Earth 2, the JSA, and beyond. We'll launch this new series with an ongoing show called Justice Society Presents Crisis, in which Rob and Shag go through each of the classic team-ups between the Justice League and the Justice Society. Then joining the podcast feed will be the Starman Chronicles. Chris and Cindy continue their coverage of James Robinson's epic series from beginning to end. Later in the year, Ryan Daly and Max Romero will tackle the Vertigo title, Sandman Mystery Theater. And two years later, Ryan will cancel it. That's probably... Then in the coming months and years, we'll be adding further ongoing shows and one-off specials celebrating other beloved characters and comics related to the JSA of any era, from the 1940s to today. Join the fight for justice and subscribe to Justice Society Presents on the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Between the golden age of Atlantis and the rise of recorded history, there were ages undreamed of. Hither came heroes and villains possessing swords and magic, whose deeds became tales and legends. I have come to relate these sagas. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. Days of High Adventure, a new podcast discussing a variety of comics that fall into the fantasy or sword and sorcery genre. Available on most podcast services and Anchor FM. We now return to Charlie's Geekcast. Action Comics number 556 had a cover date of June 1984 and an on-sale date of March 29th, 1984 with a cover price again of 75 cents. The cover this time out is actually by Eduardo Barreto and Klaus Janssen and depicts Superman being arrested amidst a... destroyed part of the city the art is actually really good here the characters look crisp the background is detailed and superman looks well super i'm not usually a jansen fan but his inks here are more complimentary than overpowering it still looks like beretto art and it looks like he actually put some time into it rather than looking rushed this is still earlier on in his career before he starts becoming a name so it's nice to see his earlier work i I actually prefer jansen's earlier work to his more modern stuff um him and frank miller on those early daredevils are actually really good as far as art is concerned and it kind of goes down by the end of their run but yeah and i just find the art to be not quite as good by the time they get the dark knight which they have not done yet so there you go that's where we are the title of this one is Endings, written by Marv Wolfman, penciled by Kurt Swan, inked by Kurt Schaffenberger, lettered by Ben Oda, colored by Gene D'Angelo, and edited by Julie Schwartz. As always, Superman's created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, which we kind of saw last issue. 
The first five pages of this story literally play out like someone started off by saying previously in Action Comics, complete with repeated dialogue. I mean, this is actually a pretty good setup for the issue since it's been over a year and newsstand distribution wasn't always the best, but the only thing wrong with this is that it's probably too long, and Swan draws Lana with her newer hairstyle despite her still sporting her older one when most of the scenes took place. Anyway, the recap focuses on Vandal Savage's plan to sway public opinion of Superman. As we catch up to the present, we see that even the Daily Planet, in order to maintain credibility and not be accused of favoritism, is forced to ask, what happened to our hero? As always, Jimmy is in Superman's corner while Justin is not so sure. Perry and Lois don't believe Superman's evil, but also realize there are questions that need to be answered, even if Superman doesn't like them. After the meeting, Clark runs into Lana and they go out and get a hot dog. On the way, Lana supports Superman and is even amazed that she ever thought Clark and Superman were the same person since they have such different souls. Clark actually contemplates spending the rest of his life with Lana here and contemplates telling her something, but is interrupted before he can finish his thought. At first, my first reading of this, I thought he was contemplating telling her that he's Superman, but after thinking about it, I wonder if he's actually contemplating telling her that he loves her? or that he would be willing to spend the rest of his life with her. Considering what he had just thought right before that. I, this once again flies in the face of Alan Moore's Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, where he says, Always Lois was the only one for me ever. I just never wanted to hurt Lana. Uh, hello? He's in love with her here. And I only point this out because it's considered one of the greatest Superman stories ever, but really did get so much of it wrong. Anyway... Unless, of course, you stopped reading it about 1969, in which case it's actually pretty accurate. Anyway, this interruption came due to an attack by the Laser Erasers. Remember them? Using their giant tank and multiple blasters to cause lots of damage, all while calling out Superman. Lana sends Clark off to get a photographer while she sets up an observation point at a safe spot. But instead, Clark changes to Superman and leaps into action. Actually, it's more of a, more of a fly, but he probably jumps to get into the sky. You know, anyway. Realizing Superman is on the scene, the Erasers change tactics to destroy as much as possible until Superman can stop them. Not wanting to waste time, Superman uses a light pole, which must be a very strong light pole, and his super cape to capture all three of them at once, and then take them away. However, with public opinion of Superman being the way it currently is, many people are glad that Superman stopped him, but also voice the opinion that crooks like the Laser Erasers like to come to town to fight Superman which usually means bad news for Metropolis. And if he wasn't there, you know, Metropolis would be safe. Meanwhile, at Abraxas, Savage is going on and on about how his plans are working and how he's planted a seed of distrust towards Superman. And since Superman tends to think with his fists rather than his brains, despite years of evidence to the contrary, he can do nothing to save himself this time. He then plans to make matters worse with what I guess you could call a sonic dart. Now, they don't actually name it in here, but it looks like a dart, and based on what it's about to do, Sonic makes sense. See, at this moment, I guess dropping off the laser erasers with the authorities was rather simple and quick ordeal. Superman is taking care of a building fire by just carrying the building away. It's very fortunate that the building does not appear to have any plumbing or wiring, or this act would be troubling all on its own, without Savage having to do anything. While he's doing this, though, the Sonic dart goes right into Superman's ear. 
inside, it activates a wall of sound, which is intensified by Superman's super hearing. The pain makes it impossible for Superman to focus and maintain control, forcing him to drop the burning building. Then he flies through another one. Then he crashes to the ground, damaging the street. And then he stumbles around, causing more damage by bumping into cars and crumpling them. Finally, Savage's army of Superman robots tackle the Man of Steel and remove the Sonic Dart, saving him on behalf of their creator. Superman apologizes and offers to make repairs, but some of the bystanders start calling for Superman's arrest due to the destruction of property. With no choice, Superman allows himself to be arrested. As he's taken away, a hologram of Savage appears, accusing Superman of turning against the people of Metropolis and feeling thankful that his robots were able to stop the hero from destroying the city. Meanwhile, everyone ignores the fact that the burning building that Superman was carrying is still on fire. At Metropolis Criminal Court, a judge declares that Superman will stand trial, but waves bail due to his past record. After flying off to the Arctic provides him with no solace, Superman decides to talk things over with Batman and meets Jason Todd as Robin for the first time. With the support of the Dark Knight, Superman heads back to Metropolis to enact his plan to clear his name. That night, Clark Kent sneaks into the control room of WGBS, fitting a small device to the main console. He's spotted by Lana, but after he explains that he's only trying to help Superman, she agrees to help because Superman has always been there for them, inadvertently also giving our hero a desperately needed pep talk in the process. At Abraxas the next day, or I'm guessing it's the next day since we had darkness and now it's light, Superman confronts Savage, and like before, Savage activates his recording equipment to record everything. Confident in his victory over the man of action, Savage basically confesses to all of his behind-the-scenes shenanigans, knowing that there is no way Superman can actually prove any of it. But Superman proves that he doesn't just think with his fists first. See, when Savage started his recordings, Superman activated a transmitter as well. That transmitter linked to the one Clark planted at WGBS the night before, causing their entire conversation to be broadcast to anyone in Metropolis, presumably the ones that had their TVs turned to WGBS at that time. With Savage now defeated, Superman departs, allowing the police to handle things from here, but by the time they enter the control room, Savage is gone. Now, this story brings an end to Marv Wolfman's main subplot since kicking off his whole 80s update with the breakup of Lois and Superman. Now, if Marv was going to be sticking around for a while longer, I'm sure there would have been some subplot continuing on from here, if he had ended it here. Involving lawyers somehow clearing him of any wrongdoing, I'm guessing blaming him, blaming everything he did on a temporary insanity due to crossing from Earth 2 to Earth 1. But this is also Marv Wolfman's exit from all the super titles, so we get this nice pat ending instead. It's nice, but I think that if he could have condensed the beginning recap a bit, we could have had more reaction to Savage's confession at the end. Like, do people have lingering doubts about Superman still, or will things just magically go back to the way they were before? Has Justin changed his stance in light of this new information? Will WGBS be in trouble for breaking into previously scheduled programming to show this confession? Will Superman be in trouble with the FCC after freely admitting to hijacking WGBS's signal for this broadcast? I may be going a little too far for this. Oh, one more thing. Will the bar that is shown showing uh, with the TV on be in trouble for allowing what appears to be underage kids in the bar, up at the bar, watching things with a smile. Yeah. Anyway, the art here was not as good as what Swan has done recently. 
I'm not sure how much of it is the inks and how much is the pencils. I'm not sure if this was a rush job since, you know, they're doing the art instead of Gil Kane. Now, for the most part, the two Kurtz mesh very well together. But here, there are few places that the art just doesn't even look like either one of them is doing the art. And again, like having Murphy Anderson ink Swan's pencils back in the, the Lex Luthor story in Action 543, having Schaffenberger ink Swan's pencils here kills some of the modern crispness that Swan was trying to bring at this point in his career. Schaffenberger's a good artist in his own right, but his work is definitely dated, which is why it works so well to put him on books like The New Adventures of Superboy, since his art matches the era which that book was set in. He was also on Super Friends because it, it, his art is a little more of an animated style than realistic. To me, and I may be reading into this way too much, but having him ink Swan here seems to signify that the attempt to update Superman is over, and now they will be focusing on just treading water until the reboot. Not that there aren't any good stories coming out between now and then in either of the books, but the excitement level just isn't quite the same as it was. Then again, this could have been used to help promote the Superman The Secret Years miniseries that was getting ready to come out at this time, which has art by Kurt Swan and inks by Kurt Schaffenberger, and was going for that nostalgia look since the book was focusing on, Car on Clark's college years. Or maybe there was a time crunch, and Schaffenberger is actually pretty good, pretty good at doing a quick inking job, it just wasn't one of his best efforts. That would explain some of the wonkiness, too. And maybe Swan was in a hurry, too, which would explain the... I mean, why it's not as well, you know, maybe I don't know. I'm not good with art. Believe it or not, if you'd like to check this issue out, it is available digitally, both on Comixology or the DC Unlimited app. One of the very few Bronze Age books you can actually read on there. It's really cool. Now, the coloring is kind of washed out, so you, you keep that in mind. It's not it doesn't look very good, but it's there. But that's going to do it for this episode. I want to thank you all for listening. I apologize that this coverage of Superman that was supposed to take about a year has taken almost two years. Uh, things just kept getting in the way and delaying things, and now I feel much more accomplished in my Bronze Age Superman coverage. Anywho, next time out, uh, because of the fact that we haven't had any feedback the last few episodes because I recorded way in advance, next time I'll be reading some feedback, and then I'm also going to take a look at a listener-requested comic. Speaking of that, if anyone has any comics they'd like to hear my opinion on, please feel free to email me or message me on Facebook or however, uh, and let me know what you'd like to hear. I'm open to just about anything as long as it's not adult, and, or, and by that I mean like porn, and as long as it's something that I can find online somewhere. Anyway, I will see you next time with some feedback and an issue of Gold Key's Star Trek comics little change of pace. I hope you all have a great week and I'll see you then. Bye guys. Thank you for listening to Charlie's Geekcast. Feedback for the show can be sent to charliesgeekcast at gmail.com or you can feel free to leave a comment at the show's posting at charliesgeekcast.com. All images and music heard on the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for entertainment purposes only. No infringement is intended. Charlie's Geekcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Please be sure to stop by Two True Freaks to check out more great shows. Thank you again for listening, and good night. Good night.